Hello, and welcome to PBC. Good morning. My name is Paul. Uh, really a joy to be here to worship with you this morning. If you forget my name, it's on my name tag. Our name tag's great. It's my one complaint to God is I wish we were born with name tags, right? So great. But uh, yeah, it's really good to be here, really great to worship together. If I haven't met you, if you're new, I'd love to meet you. Please feel free to come up and introduce yourself. I want to start off this morning doing something that's very dangerous for a preacher to do. You ready for some danger? All right. I'm going to invite you just for a moment to close your eyes. All right? Just for a moment. So go ahead and close your eyes. And I want you to imagine an ocean. I want you to see in your mind an ocean. And I want you to see the waves coming in, crashing wave after wave after wave. Maybe you're the kind of person that likes to be in the ocean. If that's the case, you can be in the ocean, in those waves, feeling their power and their unpredictability, the majesty of them, even the danger, and a little bit of fear. See that ocean. See it come in time and time again. Now go ahead and open your eyes. Most of you have. That's good. Why do we like the ocean? What, what is it about the ocean? I think for me, I can be tempted to think that the story that I'm living in is really about me. That it began at my birth, that I'm right in the middle of it, that I'm the main character, and that the plot is really centered on the daily things of my life. But when I see the ocean, I'm reminded of the truth, that the story that I'm a part of is much larger than me, that these waves have been crashing long before I was born, time and time again, that unless Jesus returns, those waves will keep crashing long after I've passed. And so seeing the ocean being there in its presence reminds me that there is much more at work in this world than the things that concern my life. And I find that there are times when I need that reminder to put my experience in context of something much greater. We're in the middle of a series right now in the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Old Testament. We are watching as God creates a people he begins by bringing them out of slavery, giving them freedom. After Christmas, we're going to see how he gives them a law, a way of living to experience life to the full. And then after Easter, we'll see how he teaches them to worship by helping them to design a tabernacle. Freedom, a law, and worship. Right now, we're in the middle of the story where God is pulling his people out of Egypt. He is leading them from slavery into freedom. And as we've been tracking this story, we're mostly following a man named Moses who is tasked with the impossible role of being the leader to lead the people out of slavery. And this morning in Exodus 6, we're going to see Moses do something that he's done several times before. We're going to see him raise one more complaint to God and one more explanation as to why he is unable to fulfill the task God has given him. And in response, God once again 
is going to reassure Moses. But this time his strategy is a bit different. He's going to help Moses to see his life in context. He's going to remind Moses that he is part of something bigger. I don't know if it feels like we've been hearing this sermon over and over again. God tells Moses to do something. Moses says, I'm sorry, God, but I can't. And God reassures Moses and he goes on his way. It's kind of the third or fourth time we've heard that basic story. And to me anyway, that's encouraging because that reminds me of myself a lot. And it makes me think that maybe I can relate to this guy named Moses. Last week, we saw God send Moses to Pharaoh. This is one of his first real uh, interactions and conflicts with Pharaoh. He, he told Pharaoh, hey, God says you got to let the Israelites go. Pharaoh says no. And as we saw last week, instead of things getting better, they actually got worse. So let's just remember where we ended last week. This is verses 22 and 23 of chapter 5. This is Moses' complaint to God. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses is frustrated. He's upset because there is a bad situation. God has sent him in to address it. And instead of things getting better, he says they've gotten worse. You've done evil, and this promise of deliverance hasn't shown up at all. This pretty much describes most of my home improvement efforts. There's a bad situation, and I go in to fix it, and it gets worse. And then about 17 trips to Home Depot later, it's about the same as it was when it started. So I can relate to Moses feeling like I wanted to help, but instead I made it worse. God then responds to Moses as he always does, patiently and with compassion. He doesn't correct Moses. He doesn't get upset at him. He draws near to him. And he tells him something important. Listen to what God says in chapter one, or sorry, verse one of chapter six. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Notice how God addresses Moses. He says, now you shall see. He recognizes Moses' insecurity, his frustration with the situation, and he says, for your sake, you're going to see it. You're going to see what's about to happen right now. God is compassionate and gentle with this man who's been called into a difficult task. The way God is going to help Moses to see this is by drawing Moses out, by zooming out to get a greater picture of the overall story. This is how Eugene Peterson describes this dynamic. He says, when we submit our lives to what we read in scripture, we find that we are not being led to see God in our stories, but our stories in God's. God is the larger context and plot in which our stories find themselves. 
This is exactly what God's going to do for Moses. He's going to remind Moses that the story at work here did not begin when Moses was born. It began much earlier. He's going to help Moses to see how what's happening now is part of that larger narrative. And then he's going to reassure Moses that he does, in fact, play a part in what God is doing in history in his time. And as we watch God comfort Moses with those words, my prayer is that we might see that the same is true of us, that we might understand our lives as part of this greater story that God is telling, and that we might reorient the way we think about things to take part in God's story. God begins his promise by introducing some language that we haven't seen a lot of in Exodus yet. We saw it once earlier on, but this is the first time where God speaks to Moses using the language of the covenant. Now, covenant is a very biblical-sounding word. It's not a word we use a lot anymore. It basically refers to an agreement between two people. And God uses this language here at the beginning and, in fact, all throughout this chapter as a way of zooming out, as a way of reminding Moses the larger story that's in play. So pay attention and listen for those words as I read uh, verses 2 through 5. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So all throughout this little passage, what God is doing is he's zooming out for Moses. He begins by saying, I am the Lord, which is a statement of identity. It's actually the way you would begin any covenant agreement. I would say, Hereby, I, Paul Taylor, do this or that. So God is beginning with covenant language, and then he points Moses backwards into the past and says, I had established my covenant long before you were born with Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph to, to, to give them the land of Canaan. So he points him back, but then he brings him forward, and he says, today, here and now, I have remembered my covenant the story that began long ago is now continuing today. See, what God is trying to do is to place Moses within the story, to reorient his perception of his life to find himself in God's story. Uh, I thought this chart might, might, might help you to really get a sense for what God's doing. See, God began a covenant with Abram in Genesis 12, verse 1. He told Abram, go into the land that I will give you. That's what God is referring to here where he says, I established my covenant. Now, here in Exodus chapter six, God speaks to Moses and says, I have remembered it. Today is the day that something's about to happen. And we know if we keep reading that actually it does happen. When we get to Joshua 5.11, the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land. They weren't just in the land, but they ate of it. The covenant was fulfilled. Moses finds himself right there, right in the middle of the beginning of the fulfillment of the covenant, 
and the actual fulfillment of the covenant. That's where he finds himself. That's where God wants to place him so that he understands his role. Do you know the story that you're a part of? Or do you think that your story began when you were born? Or when you took your first job? Are you being led to believe that your story is about your career path where you can achieve certain things and, and find some level of security? Or about your family that you're able to raise and protect and send out? Or, or is your story about your particular people and how they've come to this country and, and you're a part of a larger immigration narrative? You need to know what your story is a part of. Each one of us needs to know our story. The reason is because we're all going to live some story. We're going to live out some story that guides our life, whether it has to do with us, whether it has to do with our company or our family or our children. There is going to be a story that drives you. The question is, what is it? What story serves as the arc of your life? And you need to know that if you have faith in Jesus, then your story began with the God who created all the good things you see around you, who created a place for vibrant, fruitful life, and then who watched that place be marred by the bad choices of the people he created to steward and enjoy that creation. Your story continues when that God decided to choose a people through whom to live out his plan of restoration. And he gave that people every advantage from a law to kings, to land, to discipline, to restoration, to all the things he could think of. And they never seemed quite up to the task of stewarding the redemption of God. And so he sent his only son, whose life would provide an example and whose death would atone for the failures of God's creation. And then all who believed in that son, that Christ, he took them and created a new people a new people whom he filled with his spirit and whom he established as his kingdom representatives on earth to be people who lived out the kingdom and invited others into the kingdom. And he's been working through those people for centuries. And then you were born. And you find yourself here, either in this room in Palo Alto or watching online or sitting on the patio. And maybe you're part of that community. Maybe you have faith in that same Christ. Or maybe you're seeking, or maybe you're not sure, or maybe you think you've lost your faith, but you're here today, and somehow your story has intersected with the story that God is writing. And you need to know how that story connects. Because it turns out that we actually find ourselves in a similar place as Moses. See, we are in between the establishment of a covenant and its ultimate fulfillment. Because towards the end of the Old Testament, the prophets began to speak of a new 
covenant. Jeremiah 31, 1 says, Behold, I will make a new covenant that will replace the old. And then when Jesus came on earth, he spoke as one who was bringing to pass that new covenant. On his last night on earth, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And we know from reading on in the story that when we get to Revelation, we see that finally, ultimately, God's presence will fill this earth and we will experience it. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We find ourselves right there in the middle, in the middle of the beginning of the promise being fulfilled and the ultimate fulfillment. That's us here today. And because we know that, the little subplots and narratives of our lives can make greater sense. A few years ago, my family went on a vacation. My parents took us and my extended family to one of those all-inclusive resorts, and it had what they called the Lazy River. Anybody ever been on a, a Lazy River? It's kind of like, a, like an artificial river. They, they dig out and they put some like pumps in it, and so it just, just goes around in a circle. I mean, it's kind of winds, and there's like fake danger and stuff like that. And, and you sit in it in a, in a little inner tube, and you just kind of float, right? And it's great. It's really fun. Um, but there's two ways you can enjoy it. One, you can sit in the inner tube, and you can float through the river. Or there's also a bunch of those beach chairs just lined up all along the side. And you can, you know, order a drink, and you can sit on the beach chair, and you can watch the people in the lazy river. This is like the lazy, lazy <laughs> river, is to watch the people being lazy, right? So I think maybe being involved in God's story is like that. And maybe some of us feel like we are actually sitting in that chair, drink in hand, watching other people participate in the flow of what God's doing. And my encouragement to you is if you feel that way, is if you feel at all that you're on the outside looking in, that you see a story unfolding in other people's lives and how they're a part of it, but you don't feel like you're involved, go ahead and jump in. Jump into that river. There's a bunch of different ways you can do it. You know, the, the one we were at, one option was a staircase. You could kind of, you know, you could go down the one step, kind of wait there. I mean, the water's warm. There's nothing to get adjusted to, but you're kind of standing there, and then the next step, and you find a tube, and you kind of carefully situate yourself in balance, and you start floating. Or, or I know some of you are the more adventurous type that grabs the tube and kind of hold it against your rear, and then you, you just jump, right? And you hope that you land. Half of you kind of fall off, and then you get back on the tube. There's different ways you can immerse yourself in this flow, but the invitation is to go ahead and jump in. Don't watch other people living out the story. Find your place in the story. See what God's going to do in your life. This is exactly what God did for Moses. As soon as he reminded him of this covenant, he immediately involved Moses in the playing out of the story. God reminds Moses that he's part of the covenant, and then he sends Moses to the people for Moses to remind them that they are part of the covenant. Listen to what he says in verses 6 through 8. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. 
and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. All of this is covenant language. He begins and ends with the bookends of I am the Lord and he gives Moses seven promises to relay to God's people. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will be your God. I will bring you. I will give you the land. These are all the things that God said he was gonna do from of old. And if you're one of those people living in Israel living in Egypt as an Israelite, you probably grew up hearing those promises. You, heard, you grew up hearing about Abram and Isaac and Jacob and the promises from long ago. But you've been in Egypt for 400 years. And all of those things sound like stories. They sound like myths, legends, the stuff that God might do in some far off place. And here's Moses coming to you and saying, those promises you heard are happening now. This is the time when God is going to work. And all of a sudden it draws a connection between the past and the present and makes this fulfillment where everything seems connected. A few years ago, I was running, I was doing a, trail run and, and I was running on a trail and somebody else was walking the other way and as we passed this person said hey Paul and so I stopped and went back and, and it turned out that this person was my best friend from eighth grade which was only like you know a few years ago um, from Connecticut I hadn't seen him in 25 years we were friends on Facebook so we kind of knew what each other looked like but he recognized me running past me, which, I mean, I run really fast. So it's like a blur. I mean, I'm surprised he saw anything at all. But he did, recognized me, and we had kind of a minute to catch up and, and you know, how's life? And then he was visiting and happened to be on this trail, and then we said goodbye. But the curious thing about that was the effect it had on me. Because I know, like some of you, my, I didn't grow up in California. I wasn't born here. So the, the California part of my life feels disconnected from the other parts of my life. Feels like where I grew up, those things, they, they can almost sometimes feel not real to me, like that was a different version of life. But all of a sudden, to meet somebody from Connecticut, where I grew up, here, and even just a 60-second conversation somehow integrated the parts of my life. And it's like, oh, I wasn't imagining <laughs> that other part of my life. It was real. And so then it was all connected. And I think that's what God is doing for the people of Israel. He's saying those, those things you grew up hearing about, they're real. I'm actually going to do them in history. They're not just promises. It's not just some distant memory. And all of a sudden, it all gets drawn together into some whole where the story of God begins to make sense. 
God wanted them to know that he hadn't forgotten his promises. And a lot of us need to know that, that God has not forgotten. Maybe we had faith, but, but now it just feels different. It feels like it didn't, doesn't feel like it used to feel. Or, or, or maybe we just think the circumstances in our life, they don't line up with what we thought faith was going to be or, or, or life. We need to know that God has not forgotten what he has said, that the things he's doing here today are part of his ultimate plan. And so God gives this message to Moses to give to the people, and you can imagine Moses excited to go to the people and tell them all that covenant stuff that God promised long ago is coming to pass here and now. And so Moses goes And he speaks to the people, and this is what happens. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. You might remember from last week that Pharaoh had a plan. His strategy was make their work so painful that the words of life from God would sound like lying words. And we find out here that his strategy worked. That because of their harsh slavery and broken spirit, these words of life and promise and fulfillment that Moses was bringing to them, they couldn't even hear. They couldn't even pay attention. So because of that, Moses gets frustrated. Again, He gets discouraged that how can you be using me to do this if it's just not working? And he gives one more complaint to God. This is what he then says in verse 12. He says, Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. It's kind of an odd thing to say, don't you think? I am of uncircumcised lips. Moses has already spoken of how he's insecure about his speaking ability. We've speculated maybe he has a speech impediment or he's just not eloquent or something. So that kind of makes sense. But this language of being uncircumcised of lips is curious. It makes a little more sense though when we remember that this whole chapter seems to be about the covenant. And if we think back, when God gave Abraham the covenant, he gave Abraham a whole list of things that God was going to do for Abraham. And he gave Abraham one thing that he needed to do as a means of accepting the terms of the covenant. And that was to be circumcised and to circumcise his sons. So this was a sign that you were part of the covenant. And so I think what Moses is trying to say here is, You might be doing something, God. There might be a covenant. Maybe there's a story out there, but it doesn't include me. I'm on the outside looking in. That's great that you're going to free your people, but I've tried to do my part. It hasn't worked, and so I'm just going to assume that you're going to do it some other way. I'm not involved. This is where the narrator steps in. We stop hearing about conversations between God and Moses for a minute, and the narrator jumps in to give us some perspective. 
And like any good ancient Near Eastern narrator, he has a favorite tool that he loves to use in circumstances where an identity is in question. That tool is called a genealogy. Now, we don't particularly resonate with genealogies because we're not ancient Near Easterners, but for our narrator, he's going to answer the question that Moses is raising through a genealogy. So he jumps in and he starts spouting off names and fathers and sons. I'm going to read a few of those to you, and then we'll try to understand what he's doing. We'll start in verse 14. The narrator says, these are the heads of their father's houses. Uh, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. Uh, then the narrator goes on and talks about Simeon, who is the second son of, of Jacob. And then he gets to Levi, who is the third son. But Levi is the one he actually cares about. So he starts drilling down from Levi until he gets to a man named Amram. Verse 20, Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister. We're not going to touch that for now. And uh, she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The father of Moses and Aaron. And then he keeps going, and we get to verse 25. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. So we start with the sons of Israel. Eventually, we get to Moses and Aaron as the sons of Levi. And then we get to Phineas, who is the grandson of Aaron. The narrator wants to place Moses squarely within the covenant. He is a son of Levi. And not just that, but Aaron's grandson will carry things on. Phineas probably hadn't even been born at this point, but God wants to here remind us that the story continues. It's going to carry forth. But then the narrator does something great. This is where it really gets fun. Verse 26, the narrator says, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. And jumping on to 30, the narrator says, but Moses said to the Lord, behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Now, here's what I think the narrator is doing. He's incredulous. He's amazed. He lists this whole genealogy which puts Moses as the perfect candidate to be part of the covenant. He's a son of Levi. And then he said, this is the Moses who said to God, behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips. Isn't that crazy? Can you believe it? Can you believe that this Moses, the one who has this genealogy, can you believe that he would ever think that the covenant was happening without him? That he would feel on the outside rather than on the inside? That's ridiculous that Moses would think that. Now, if you're like me, then you can be prone to comparison. It's easy for you to look at other people's lives and say, wow, I see how God is working through that person's life. I see what they're doing, and that's awesome, but I, I mean, I don't know what I'm doing. Clearly, God's working through them. So maybe we need to be reminded that God can work through us. In those moments when we doubt whether we're a part of things, 
we can be reminded that we're part of this story. See, remember, the, the new covenant, the covenant that we're a part of, if you have faith in Jesus, isn't about genealogy. It doesn't matter who your father or your father's father was. It doesn't matter if you know the right Christian lingo. It doesn't matter whether you grew up in church. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past. There's only one thing that counts in the new covenant. Faith. Faith in Jesus. That's all. And you don't even have to have a lot of faith. It's not about how much faith you have. It's about who your faith is in. And if you have faith, even faith like a mustard seed, in the person of Jesus, then you are part of the covenant. You're in. You're in the middle of that story. And then it's up to us to find our part in God's story. Find your part in God's story. And for a lot of us, it begins, as Peterson said, with finding God in our story. We live our lives and then we, we somehow become aware that God is in our lives. And then over time, we realize that it's us that's in God's story. Our perspective shifts. And I want to suggest that it's crazy for any of us to think that we don't have a part in God's story. Heidi, I don't know if you ever wonder whether you're a part of God's story, but I've seen your faith. And I want Heidi to imagine that we're all the narrator. And we are incredulous that Heidi could ever possibly wonder whether she's part of the covenant. Because we've seen her faith. And isn't it crazy that she could ever question that God is working through her? Isn't that crazy? Behind you, Rick. I don't know, Rick, if you've ever wondered whether God is working through you, but I've seen your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've ever wondered, I want the rest of us to think, isn't it crazy that Rick Toker has ever had the smallest thought in his head that he might not be part of what God's doing in this world? We should be incredulous because we've seen his faith and that's all that matters. We need to be reminded day in, day out, that we can jump into God's story, find our parts, and as long as we have faith, even the littlest bit, that's all that matters. I opened this morning asking you to think about the ocean, and I want to thank the most of you that opened your eyes when I invited you to do so. Um, and then I, I kind of transitioned the metaphor, and I, and I pictured this lazy river, this kind of artificial path, and invited us to maybe think about jumping in to the story of God. But, but really, that's a bad metaphor. I mean, the lazy river is this kind of a little bit janky thing people build, and it's not a real river, and it just kind of goes in a circle. Really, the invitation has to do with something much larger. If we're going to find our part in the story of God, it's much more like jumping into the ocean than a little man-made lazy river. It's much more like feeling the unpredictability and the power and the glory of those waves and seeing how our lives somehow, in some way, contribute to the story that God is writing in the world. I want to invite the band to come back up. 
And as we continue to worship, I want to invite you during this next song to, to think about that image, to think, even, even hear the rhythm of the music, like the rhythm of those waves, to imagine this grand epic story of covenant and fulfillment and redemption and restoration, all these ideas that seem sometimes so far away, but to realize that they are being played out in the little subplots and narratives and dramas of our lives. And so as you offer your life, ask God to build your life in him, that, that you would see yourself in the context of his story and offer whatever it is that he wants to do through you in this world. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a, what a gift to be able to see this story in Exodus, this man, Moses, to encounter his courage, his insecurity, his complaints, and to see the patient way that you relate to him and assure him and draw him constantly into the action that, that you're doing in the world. We pray that you'd speak clearly to us, that it would be clear for us to know what it is that you're asking us to do, what it means to follow you in our lives, in our circumstances, in our workplaces, in our families, in our schools. And God, we pray that you'd give us the courage to jump into that action, to follow you, to see our lives unfold in the greater story and to glory in it. So we worship you because you are so much bigger than us. We need to know that and we need to find ourselves in you. In the name of Jesus, amen. We will build our lives on the Lord. Worthy of every song we could ever sing.